0: Welcome to Sustainable Energy Asia podcast.
1: Hi everyone, it's Ben. Today I'm joined by Dov Gillen, Head of Innovation and Technology at the International Renewable Energy Agency, or ARENA. And we are going to talk about the critical material for the energy transition. Specifically, we're going to talk about lithium, cobalt, nickel, and rare earths. And my main take from our conversation are as follows. First, it is critical to manage this material for example, the material necessary for the battery cathode will need to grow in line with um, 4 to 5 times growth of battery production expected in 4 or 5 years. Second, technology innovation is sometimes able to substitute material facing bottlenecks. This has been the case for cobalt which has been substituted by nickel in some EV batteries. As always, if you want to have the show, please rate the show and leave a comment on your podcast provider. Thank you. Hi, Vdolf. Welcome to the show. You are Director of Innovation and Technology at the International Renewable Energy Agency, or ARENA. Could you tell us a little bit more about ARENA and the organization goals and the initiatives implemented recently?
0: Sure. I'm uh, normally based in Germany, but I'm now actually in the United Arab Emirates because this week our council met. We, we are an intergovernmental agency, 167 uh, countries, and our mandate is to advise them on renewables deployment and on energy transition. And the the, the center I'm heading in Bonn focuses on innovation and technology topics.
1: And could you tell us a bit more about your career? You started working in academia and then transitioned and worked in the international organization. Could you just give us a brief overview?
0: Yeah, unfortunately it's already a long career. So when I started working in in energy 30 years ago, the renewables were honestly not very high on the agenda. So that has dramatically uh, changed because of the significant cost reduction. And of course, the the urgency of the climate problem has significantly increased. Everybody agrees now we need net zero by mid-century. And renewables have to play a, a key role in providing that clean energy. So that makes that, since a couple of years, a tremendous interest uh, in the topics, which is is, of course, very positive. And uh, let's say the the technology we think is there. It's a matter now of ramping it up and and really deploying it at at a massive scale.
1: So today we are going to speak about the materials critical for energy transition and specifically about three publications you published since 2021. And really, I think that's a very brilliant subject because since mid 2021, the price of lithium, nickel, cobalt, and rare earths, all of which we're going to speak about, have increased dramatically. So, we'll cover two different sections one on EV battery, and the second one on rare earths. So, on EV battery, what we're going to talk about is about the, the material necessary to make the cathode in the battery, which are lithium, nickel, and cobalt specifically. And then on the Rear Earths uh, section, we're going to talk about permanent magnets because Rear Earths are used to produce permanent magnets, which are used for turbine and electric vehicles. And the first question I have is how you came up with this idea of working on critical material for the energy transition.
0: Yeah. So it starts always with, in our case, with countries coming with questions and a number of countries saw that, especially for electromobility, they're going to need a lot of, of battery materials. And that raised questions about where will these materials come from? Do we have sufficient of these materials, et cetera. Plus you, you saw also a bit of a discussion in the media. There were some people saying, well, Maybe we don't have sufficient critical materials, and maybe we can't do energy transition, so let's stick with what we have. So that meant we, we needed to take a closer look.
1: Now let's start with our first subject on the lithium ion battery, and especially on the materials that are used for the cathodes. Could you, as an introduction, explain how a lithium ion battery is working and explain the fundamental chemistry of this battery?
0: Yeah, everybody has a lithium ion battery. Because it's the battery that's also used uh, in your mobile phone. And uh, of course, for a car, you need a much larger battery than you need for a phone. So it's a few hundred kilos and that battery is basically a black box, if you like, that can store electricity and that electricity you can release again, it's through a chemical reaction and if you open up a battery, then there is two electrodes. One is called a cathode, the other one is called an anode. And between these two electrodes, you have a substance called an electrolyte, a separator. What, what happens is between these two electrodes, lithium ion move. And the, the two electrodes are also connected through the electricity grid, if you like, or through the car and The, the electrons that are uh, released when lithium splits into lithium ion and and an electron, they move then through the motor. The lithium ions, the direction in which they move depends on whether you're charging or discharging the battery. The anode of today's batteries is uh, usually graphite and the cathode. There are different materials mixes.
1: So we are going to talk about this mix of materials that constitutes the cathode just a bit after, but the reason you've done the study was because many countries have seen that the demand for battery and especially from EV and green mobility was going to increase uh, a lot in the coming years. What is really the projected demand for lithium ion battery? If we look at the projected demand for EV cars?
0: Yeah, the growth will be massive. And in fact, today's production capacity is already massive. It's, it's in the order of 500 gigawatt hour. To put that in context, the annual power generation capacity addition is about 200 gigawatt. and a lithium ion battery has about two gigawatt hour per gigawatt. So the amount of batteries that is manufactured every year in terms of capacity already exceeds what we. Are at uh, in terms of power generation worldwide. So gives you a sense of how important it is today. And that is projected to quadruple or quintuple in the next uh, four or five years. So massive rollout. And that's just the start mm-hmm. because that, <laughs> and we need to continue growing because today's share of EVs in car sales it is at, at around 10%. And of course, we need to go to hundred percent of the market. So that means we need a, a tenfold increase at least. And that means that also the material supply for battery manufacturing needs to increase tenfold.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And we understand why there will be a lot of pressure to make sure that we deliver enough material to meet this demand. We're going to start first by talking about EV battery and especially about the materials that will be used to produce the battery cathode, which account for about 50% of the cost of EV battery. And we're going to start with lithium. So uh, could you spend some time just to define what is lithium, how first it is produced and second, how it is processed to become part of the battery?
0: Yes, the, the lithium content in a battery pack is not that high. It's in the order of a few percent. But lithium is the critical element to make the battery work. It's the lightest metal, and that is what creates the ions that move uh, in that battery. And the traditional production technology is from brine, so underground salt water that has a high content of salts, including lithium. And you find these salts, especially in Chile. Bolivia and and Argentina lakes. And then the other main resource of lithium is as rock ore, it's called the spodumene. And that is at the moment, especially mined in Australia. And so the processing for the brine is very different than from the rock ore. So the brine, basically you need to extract the salt and then purify the salt. In the case of the ore, you first need to crush the ore, take out the spodumene and, and then process that. The type of lithium you need depends a little bit on the type of battery you have. There is a lithium hydroxide and there is lithium carbonate. So the brine naturally gives you lithium carbonate. So you need to, the, the lithium carbonate. If you have what's called lithium iron phosphate batteries, you need lithium hydroxide if you have these nickel manganese cobalt type of, of batteries.
1: And besides the demand we talk about, you've been also spending some time to study the supply of lithium. How do you see today the current supply of lithium growing?
0: Well, we need a, a four to five-fold increase to 2030. So, mm-hmm. of course, that is a, a very significant growth. You see that both the brine production and the ore mining is increasing so lithium a resource is enough but the upscaling of the processing and ensuring that you get the quality of the carbonate or the hydroxide that you need for battery production that is the main challenge and because that ramp up needs to happen so fast that's that explains why you see that price increase right now so it, it does not reflect uh, the the natural scarcity, but it reflects the market scarcity at the moment. Do
1: you have any policy advice in terms of how to ramp up this supply? So there needs to be a lot of investment into making more high quality lithium available.
0: That's right. And the question is a bit, is that a task for the governments or is that a task for the private sector? Well, what you see is that that uh, uh, a lot of the battery makers and car manufacturers have woken up to this issue and they're now getting much more involved upstream uh, in the supply of these materials mm-hmm. and the miners say, look, we, we can do it, but we need a guaranteed offtake because developing these mining projects may take uh, five, 10 years. And and uh, we don't want to be in a situation where we invest billions just to discover that the market has again crashed, as has happened with lithium before.
1: Yeah, so that's really interesting because you can see companies such as Tesla, who in the US uh, are going directly to the mine in California and taking up all the processing value chain from the mine directly towards making the battery.
0: And uh, lithium seems especially... Critical. I mean, there's some talk about sodium batteries, where you would substitute lithium, but they're much further down the road. So all battery types we're talking of at the moment, let's say for the next 10 years, contain lithium. So, and while that is not the case for nickel or cobalt.
1: That's a good transition towards the two other elements I wanted to talk about, which are cobalt and nickel. Essentially, how we can view it is in the cathode, cobalt and nickel and manganese, or acting as a bookshelf, and the lithium or lithium ion are the book, so you have different kind of bookshelves. So cobalt is more stable, a bit more expensive than nickel. C- could you explain a little bit about cobalt, the landscape of where it is produced, and what is the content in a typical lithium ion battery?
0: Yes, so uh, only a few years ago, a typical battery cathode would have been a third the nickel. Uh, a third manganese, and a third cobalt. And then there was uh, a lot of concerns emerged about the cobalt content in these batteries because the bulk of the cobalt resource and the bulk of the mining takes place in the DRC. There is issues around environmental and sustainability of that mining. Also, a lot of the cobalt is in fact byproduct of other materials that are, are being mined, so you cannot just expand it. Because of all these reasons, there was uh, new research and then new cathode types were developed, so they're much higher on nickel. So if you have the best batteries today, they may have 80% nickel. And nickel resource is more widely spread. So there are two types. There is a nickel sulfide uh, ore and there is nickel in, in tropical soils and nickel production in fact, is quite significant, but the bulk of the nickel is going uh, into stainless steel today. And that nickel quality is not exactly the same, what you need for the batteries. So especially these sulfide ores at the moment are uh, of interest for the batteries, but you cannot so easily ramp up that supply. And for example, that's also why you saw the hiccup with the Ukraine crisis now, because Nurelsk Nickel, which is a nickel sulfide producer, was affected by that. And so there is work going on now to see how to transform this nickel from laterate soils also into battery grade. There are some issues around the mining, again, environmental uh, impacts. But there is a massive ramp up of that mining going on at the moment in Indonesia. So expectation is in fact that we will have more nickel than we need in the coming years, provided that these environmental issues are dealt with. And another interesting development is probably soon you're going to see the start of deep sea mining of nodules, which also contain significant amounts of nickel. So expectation is that, provided the environmental and sustainability issues are, are dealt with appropriately, that this shouldn't be a big issue in the coming years.
1: So you are think that there are innovation in the battery space where the cathode used to rely a lot on a cobalt and now it's transitioning, to relying way more on nickel. And then that's because the nickel is not as well and the supply chain is quite stable, this shouldn't be a big issue for the future.
0: So, so indeed that, that is one thing. And, and the other thing you've seen in the market in response to the high cobalt and nickel prices is the emergence of a different type of cathode material. It's called uh, the the lithium iron phosphate battery, which then completely eliminates the use of of nickel and cobalt, but the performance of that battery is is somewhat less. So the, the drive range is a bit less, the weight is a bit higher. So for that reason, that battery is especially suited, let's say, for city cars, where where drive range is is not such a big issue. But still, lithium iron phosphate has grown from a niche to half of the world car battery market in only three years. So it's a very remarkable shift that took place.
1: That's very interesting. And I think we cover a lot of ground on EV batteries. So now let's talk about rare earths. Could you? Define what is rare earth, what are permanent magnets, and their are in and why is it so important for the energy transition?
0: So r- rare earth elements is a very confusing name because they're not rare. <laughs> they're not cars in that sense. And it's a group of elements with uh, particular chemical properties that makes that they're very difficult to separate. So that's why, why you don't find them separately in nature. And that's why they were discovered relatively late. So that's why they were called rare elements. And out of this group of 17, there are four which are used in permanent magnets. And the, the most important ones are neodymium and dysprosium. So permanent magnets are very strong magnets that keep their magnetization. position. With these properties, you can use them in electric motors and in generators of electricity. The main application is then again in electric vehicles and in wind turbines. Because these two market segments are expected to grow very strongly, we need more of these specific rare earth elements. So out of the the rare earths you mine, maybe there is 20% useful rare earths that you can use for this specific permanent magnet application. Because of that, because of this changing market, you see that the prices of the rare earths have changed significantly. So these, which have these specific properties for permanent magnets, the price has increased significantly. It's not so much the mining that is an issue. There's plenty of these materials around. It's the processing that is the issue. So it's quite uh, uh, elaborate processing. requires also special knowledge and China has really built a dominant position in that over the last 30 years or so, and with the importance of these permanent magnets increasing, so, so now significant parts of the economy will depend on that going forward. That has raised some questions, well, is, is such a, a dependency on a single country, isn't that too much risk? Can't we diversify that? And, and that's why you see now in the U.S., but also in Europe, efforts to, to see whether we can diversify that production. If,
1: if we take the, the current picture of the supply for rare earths for these permanent magnet applications, what, what is the percentage of China in, in the global supply?
0: It's uh, in the order of 90%.
1: So if tomorrow there is a disruption in the supply chain in China, there will be a real bottleneck for the rest of the world to produce any wind turbine or electric motors?
0: Well, um, of course, if that happens overnight, yes. But in fact, there are for both applications, solutions that avoid the use of permanent magnets. But of course, if you have a production line that is now tailored to the use uh, of these permanent magnets, you cannot change that overnight. So in that sense, there is a dependency, yes.
1: And considering the current political environment where there is a real rollback on globalization, what is your view on the steps that should be adopted to enhance the security of rare earth supply?
0: So I think it's a number of steps. Of course, it's important to maintain a good dialogue between suppliers and and consumers of these uh, products. And I think also from discussions in China. My impression is they also see the, the benefits of diversifying supply. So, so innovation is part of the solution to also develop products that avoid the use of these permanent magnets. And you see that a number of car makers are doing that and I said, you can buy wind turbines without uh, permanent magnets and then try to develop a supply chain that is also geographically uh, diversified. So the initial efforts were very much focused on, oh, we need to mine rare earth elements outside China. Mm -hmm. But of course, then if you have to ship uh, all of that ore to China to be processed, you haven't really changed your supply security. So you need to think about the mining. You need to think about the processing, the separation of these elements, and you need to think about production of these permanent magnets. And you see that thinking now being put uh, into practice.
1: Fascinating. And as you said, you've been working for 30 years around renewables, around technologies for energy transition. If we need to single out one innovation or one technology that you think is really critical to achieve energy transition, which one would it
0: be? Well, we, we cover all six forms of renewable energy. And we love them all and we need them all. <laughs> yeah, But the one that really jumps out is solar PV in a sense that the potential is orders of magnitude larger than global energy uh, use. The costs have come down very significantly. It's a technology that can be widely deployed also in developing countries. Uh, and in the tropics, you don't have that much wind, for example, but you have a lot of solar. So that is one that deserves a lot of attention. We are also looking at critical materials and related to solar PV. For example, there's a lot of silver around 10 or 15% of all global silver produced is going into PV. So there is a need also to focus on that and see how we that uh, can increase the efficiency of use. That done in combination with batteries, in combination with electrification of end use will take us a long way in the transition.
1: I would have big battery because I feel right now the biggest story for the energy transition is really the uh, capability for us to be able to store energy. But this is really related to the fact that there's a lot of uh, renewable intermittent energy, such as solar, that's coming towards the grid. That was fantastic. Thank you so much, Dol, for your time.
0: Thank you very much, Pat. It was a pleasure.